This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. China got a little ticked off with us after Canada made a move to change the conversation, if you will, about um, Chinese election interference. We wondered if this would happen. It came. Some people are being critical that it's two years late. That's all fine and good. But in the House of Commons yesterday, Foreign Affairs Parliamentary Secretary Rob Oliphant made the official announcement. Zhao Wei has five days. I think he's got four now to leave the country. Get out. Pack your stuff. Don't forget that shaving kit. Don't forget those those slippers right by the bathroom door and get out. Take off, as we Canadians say. Now it's two years late. Many people think that's the case. And we wondered, hmm, China's not exactly going to send us a thank you. He had a good time note last evening. Will they? So when they woke up for business, which would have been last night for us, this morning for them, it's evening now in China, it's uh, 7 p.m. In, uh, in, in Beijing right now, we would look at this situation and say, of course, there was going to be a response. And there was. They'd like one of our diplomats to leave. Of course, that's going to be true. Canada's consul in Shanghai is getting expelled. This is your plain old tit for tat, tat for tit, blah, blah, blah. And why is that? Well, Canada is sending home a Chinese diplomat accused of trying to intimidate a lawmaker. What's their reason for sending Jennifer Lynn Lalonde home? Your guess is as good as mine. But we probably knew it was coming. China decides to, here's the quote from Beijing's foreign ministry, China decides to declare Jennifer Lin Lalonde counsel of the Consulate General of Canada in Shanghai persona non grata. She's been asked to leave China before May 13th. So we probably, now again, I don't know who was Tat and who was the other thing, but um, it, it definitely takes us back to a place where relations aren't so good. But I could care less if relations are seemingly worse now. I care about the integrity of our elections. I care about our elected officials not being intimidated. I care about our elected officials like Michael Chong not having to stress and and toss and turn every night, worried about his relatives in Hong Kong. We had Melissa Lantzman on the show yesterday, conservative MP, and maybe she saw it coming. Maybe I saw it coming. But either way, we had that conversation. She just wanted this done. I think it should have been done uh, weeks ago. And uh, and the government who, uh, you know, the, the foreign affairs minister, catch this clip if you haven't. Uh, it's Michael Chong uh, asking her questions at committee. Uh, and she's basically doing a cost-benefit analysis, scream of consciousness out loud uh, for everybody to hear on what the decision-making is. Just make the decision and get them out of here. Pierre Polyev in the House of Commons yesterday, uh, and he had to push this more towards Christian Freeland, more towards Melanie Jolie, Prime Minister Trudeau making his way back uh, from London, England. But um, he's calling. He obviously called for, as about half an hour before it ended up happening, the expulsion of the Chinese diplomat as well. Prime Minister believes that he should stand up and say so and kick out this operative from Canada. So far, he's been hiding. He's hiding from answering my questions, but he's hiding from the regime in Beijing. This government's now saying that they cannot kick out this operative, even though we threatened the family of a Canadian MP, because they're afraid of the consequences that Beijing will impose on the Liberal government that it has supported for so long. Will the Prime Minister finally put this country first? 
bring home security to all MPs and kick this operative out, yes or no? Yeah, you wonder what happened over the weekend. I mean, there was consideration and pros and cons and mulling. There was a lot of mulling. That's the best word I can describe for Melanie Jolie back and forth. We're assessing different options, including the expulsion of diplomats, she said last week. So we will see where this goes. Chong said the report identified that a Toronto-based diplomat was part of the plot. And already, you know, there's no doubt that that members of the Chinese diaspora are intimidated. Um, There are Chinese police stations set up here in Toronto. This is 12.7 percent of the Toronto population um, identifies as Chinese. It's much bigger. I never thought it was that much bigger than the Korean population or the Japanese population. But indeed, it is. Um, So the East Asian population. I'm sure there's some stress this morning. Hopefully all goes well. Hopefully, hopefully there's uh, th- this adds to some resolution. But this story far from over, given what China did overnight to the Canadian diplomat. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Friday was opening day at Canada's Wonderland. A week and a half before was media day. Our own Shiba Siddiqui was there uh, soaked to the bone in a torrential rainstorm and some cold weather and whatnot. You took the family up a two Saturdays ago. I did, yes. And we had a great time. It's a great time at Canada. I love Wonderland. I'm, I, I always will be in on Wonderland. I'm going to miss the days when I just have to go up there by myself. I don't know what I'm going to do when I don't have kids to go up there anymore. <laughs> it, it doesn't feel like a buddy-buddy thing. To just go up there. You need kids nearby. Yeah, that's the true. security and, blanket well, for adults. I mean, there were a lot of kids this weekend. There was a bit of an issue happening at Wonderland this weekend. It was opening weekend. It was packed. It's always, I feel like it's the start of summer when Wonderland mm-hmm. opens. Uh, and there were several social media platforms with multiple videos posted uh, of what is being deemed online as Wonderland Fight Club. Now, I know the first rule is you don't talk about Fight Club but what if it's Wonderland Fight Club? If it's, about yeah, it, I guess you're allowed to talk about Wonderland. Oh. Apparently, according to York Regional Police, you're allowed to talk about Wonderland Fight Club because it was complete chaos in terms of there were fights that broke out all over the park. Uh, and these are youth. These are young, younger kids. And I guess there's some type of an altercation that happens. Nobody really knows how it starts. Uh, and oftentimes it was led away with teens in handcuffs. Uh, other times there were kids that were... They, the fight started in Wonderland. Security would come and break it up. And then they would take it right across the street to the McDonald's parking lot. Or there's a Starbucks there as well. Yeah, and I know was, where the McDonald's is. It's Yeah, it's it's an easy walk. Yeah, it is. And so the was gates. the Starbucks. And they would move the fight there. And it was just... And these videos that, that are being posted online, complete chaos in these parking lots. Some of them were in the Wonderland parking lot, had to be removed from there as well. So my son told me about this, and I honestly didn't believe him. And I owe him a pseudo-apology because I kind of scoffed at him. But he said there cons- there's possibly going to be a policy that doesn't let guests uh, 15 or under in unless there was someone who's 21 years or older. And, th- and this is the case in some theme parks in, in the United States yes. now. That's unheard and it's working, of. But it's curbing the violence that's happening at these parks. But this is only from 4 p.m. onwards. So during the day, if you're, I believe, if you're under 15, that's what they're considering. It's not official yet, but but it does curb the violence. And you know what? It's just funny. I mean, I saw this in a couple of bomb groups over the weekends as well, that there were just the fights that are being posted at Wonderland in the parking lots across the street. And then in the midst of all of this fighting, Wonderland Fight Club, there are kids doing live dance TikToks. (laughs) In the middle of it all. So they're doing their dance routine with the background of the fight happening behind them 
You just don't know what to videotape. The dance competitions or the fist fights. Well, you get both. Yeah. You can get both. You get you know, one in the background, one in the forefront, so it works out. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I will talk but about I don't it. know. I don't know how I feel about my 14-year-old not being allowed to go to Wonderland after 4 p.m. I know. That, yeah, that adult accompaniment policy. Um, some, of the, some of the Friday nights and Saturday nights when it gets dark, that's the, that's the most fun time to be there as a yes. teenager. Let me clarify. There is not a age policy at Canada's Wonderland yet. I don't think that there would be, but there's, there's these other parks. Uh, Kings Island is in Ohio. They've got a policy. Kids can't come into the park during evening hours without an adult. Uh, Worlds of Fun. Nice name. How long did it take you to think that one up? Worlds <laughs> of Fun in Kansas City. Where are you going this weekend? Worlds of Fun. Um, and they had a fight with 100 teens opening weekend in Kansas City, Missouri. And guess 15 and under are going to be, must be accompanied by a chaperone who's at least 21 years old. This was the problem for me without having an older brother or sister is I had nobody she had nobody to buy me um, beer. I had nobody to take me <laughs> to a movie that might have just a smidge of nudity in it. Just a smidge. A smidge. Or some bad, those adult accompaniment movies. I knew I couldn't get into the restricted movies. But um, Well, the kids nowadays have the internet, so that problem is solved. They don't worry about that stuff. Well, yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's difficult to get them to Canada's Wonderland or to movies <laughs> or to restaurants or all this stuff. So I, it's hard to see, and I don't know the demographics. Like I'd love to look at the data for Canada's Wonderland and see... Just how many kids are coming through the turnstiles, or they buy their yearly pass, right? There's there's kids that go 15 times with a yearly pass. 15 times? They go way more. And some of them are there every day after school. <laughs> really? They have, so If you live in the neighborhood, why not? That's the place to be. Why that's not? the place to go after school and on the weekends. Yeah, if you're in Vaughn, it is, it's a delight. And that's where you go and, you know, you chop someone, you see someone. Come on, when you were young? Well, you weren't here when you were younger, right? You weren't living here. So that's the place to go when, you know, you're, you, that, was, that was the online dating. Yeah, I suppose it was. Although, again, the concerts were such a big draw for me. I'd probably only come up to go yeah. to a concert at Kingswood, but then you'd spend the whole day there. That's it. And, uh, and now they have the water park. And- oh, my gosh. Well, you needed a change of clothes because if you went, if the concert was at like 7.30 or 8 o'clock and you went on that Zumba flume at 6 p.m., you were soaked. <laughs> and then you're sitting there thinking, I don't want to watch a concert in Soaking wet. completely wet clothes. Um, and, you know, parachute pants and whatever I was wearing, acid wash jeans. The water just treats those things differently. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. We like our our audience to get smarter, and they're going to get smarter very instantaneously with the presence of Selena Cesar Chavan. It's great to have you in studio with us. Great to be here, Greg. You're (laughs) running for mayor of Toronto. Yes. June 26th is is election day, and... uh, I think this is this is something I, I think people will ask um, what the motivation was. We won't, we weren't sure if you were done with politics. I think politics yeah. is a better place with you in it. I think people said that to you, but I'm sure with with all the transpired, I think sometimes people walk away from the political game and they're like, "Whew, that's a relief that that's over," and I'm not so <laughs> out there in the spotlight. But you're back. Tell us tell us some of the motivation to to do this job for a city you love so much. Yeah, no, leaving politics as a federal MP was a difficult decision, uh, leaving a party, leaving politics behind. But I really think over the last four years, I've taken an opportunity to learn more about myself, to grow into myself and to not to not be so intimidated by coming up with the new ideas that I have for a great place like Toronto, for example. And so coming back in, thinking about the relationships that I've had, thinking about my business expertise, my research expertise, and just saying, I, th- I think this is the opportunity to come back where, with a city that I love, but then I think a city that needs 
fresh, innovative ideas that are maybe not shiny, but are going to set the foundation for Toronto going forward. We need we need practicality. We need <laughs> we need sensibility. Like it's it's oftentimes you hear a phrase like common sense, and I know Mike Harris said the common sense revolution, but common sense to me isn't left, right, or center. It's just it's just probably what what a doctor should prescribe for the city of Toronto right, right now is sensibility. We have to be sensible in these times. Right. And I think that's this is where the differentiator comes in. It is not about making big multi-million dollar promises that are tied up in shiny bows, but about saying, okay, where is Toronto at right now? And what kind of Toronto do we want for the future? And how do we start to build a stable foundation in ter- including revenue streams, including housing, like looking at safety and mental health supports? What kind of city do we want and how hard are we willing to work to get it but it has to be practical because we're facing unprecedented financial challenges and we need to be a little bit more practical as how we move forward how have you seen the city change in the last five years and how much how much of it's the pandemic i and i ask that because i i worry about all big cities i think they're all having a little struggle getting back on their feet and dealing with homelessness and and economic issues and and figuring out what policing should be and and people working from home as well. We know our streets aren't as busy and we know our commutes aren't the same as they used to be here. Yeah, well, we're in a building right now that is is pretty pretty empty and when yeah. when we think about when we think about, you know, what we want to do going forward, we have to not necessarily talk in silos. We talk about housing in silos. We talk about getting jobs in silos. We talk about crime in silos. And all of these things are interconnected. They're all related to the social determinants of health. Nobody wants me to say it, but they're all related to how people thrive, in other words. So if we're talking about housing without talking about the social supports connected to that, without talking about upstream and downstream safety, we, we're we not going to see that translate into the city that we want. So I think all cities are struggling, but looking at a comprehensive approach to all of our really challenging issues is going to be the way forward. Was this on your mind even last fall, John Tory? I don't want to say he ran an uncontested election, but a lot yeah. of the names, yeah, a lot of the names <laughs> didn't get in who are now in now. And um, you know what, the, like there's nothing to lose for a lot of city councilors that will just go back and become city councilors right. again if they don't win. Um, but I, I'd ask if, if it was sort of, you know, rolling in your brain a little bit last fall to think I could do something here. I could help. I could, I, it was kind of rolling around. You know, I've had various conversations with different people over the last four years that said, Selena, you have unfinished business in politics. You need to go back. There's things that you could really offer. And I really didn't think about it in terms of coming into the municipal level. And, you know, people would also say, you need to go in municipally. And I didn't really think about it until this really opened up. And I thought, yeah, maybe there is an opportunity to get stuff done on the ground, but to also work with municipal, uh, sorry, uh, provincial mm-hmm. and federal partners to to really activate the kind of st- city that we want. And Toronto being, you know, an, not just an economic powerhouse, but a political powerhouse that could change what happens, uh, not just in Toronto, but Ontario and across the country. I mentioned your idea last week, and uh, it was something that, that I just, I, I think, happenstance said in the summer. And some, some of it's living in the U.S. and seeing how U.S. cities have been able to generate revenue. So whether it's been mm-hmm. New York, Chicago, we could compare it all the time to Chicago. Chicago makes their own money, whether it's the city proper, whether it's Chicago County, but there is a sales tax and they get to keep some of it. And we've just, we have such an antiquated system where the mayor kind of walks up, 
asks the premier for money, walks up, asks the prime minister for money. And there's an element of of just a, an absolute lack of autonomy and independence to that process 100%. that, that I, we got to change. And, and you said you would try and change it. 100%. So I met with uh, different researchers, different leaders around the revenue generating sources that are in Toronto. When you think about 97 or, or 95% or more of our revenues coming in from just property taxes that have to pay for private services, public services, social mm -hmm. services, it doesn't make any sense. You could drive them up 20% and cover everything. But really, you have to diversify that revenue stream. So looking at those specific models to do that is the way big cities are run. So it's not just Selena coming up with a happenstance idea. It's the way big cities globally are run. And so why is Toronto falling so far behind? Yeah. And, and, and like how you must be asking how nobody has brought this to the forefront 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 in, in, in modern society, yeah. we've just sat here and we have the same, you know, taxation system for Toronto that we had in 1940 and we're a totally different city. Right. And, and so this is a challenge because it's going to be hard. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's going to take the roll up your sleeves. Let's get it done uh, work. So my proposal is to really uh, negotiate with the feds and with the province too a carve out of our GST. We're already paying this tax, right? Yeah. We're asking because the social services and housing have been downloaded to the to the municipality within Ontario, why aren't we getting a greater share of that money? And that that money is going to be earmarked for social assistance and housing programs, but it's going to take some time and it has to have the person that has the relationships. So relationships with other mayors across Ontario, but also relationships with the federal government and the province to make it work. And, and Greg, I'm just going to say to the listeners one more thing, that I'm going to try to do this within two years. I want to put skin in the game. This is not about me making some promise and then walking away and saying, you know, well, so it didn't happen. If in two years this doesn't get done, my third year in office is going to be really uncomfortable and I probably won't have a fourth. So I want mm -hmm. to really leverage my relationships, but also leverage the political power of Toronto. Look at the 2015, the 2019, the 2021 elections. We showed up for the federal government in those elections. It's time for the federal government to show up for Toronto. Selena Caesar Chavan is in with us on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. And I think about that with the city taxes. You're also not just taxing, you know, there's a tax that our residents are already paying, but you're also getting visitors. If right. we're the like we're the we're the tourism capital of the world. You and I, you and I could walk around Toronto today in a couple hours, and you'd see people taking pictures. I'm like, wow, there's the CN Tower. Wow, there's Rogers Center, yes. and they're fascinated by it. I, even living in London, two hours away, it was a huge deal to come to Toronto. So you and I wouldn't go to London or Paris or Tokyo and go, "What's this tax here? What is this?" No. We just go and yeah. and and. People would do that here. And that helps, to be honest, that not only, Selena, helps us pay for practical stuff, that can help us pay for the fun stuff as well. If you want to host, host World Cup games, may, put a hotel tax in. Vancouver 100%. just did that. 100%. And they're going to pay for their entire World Cup stadium upgrades and all the infrastructure around it from visitors checking in and out of hotels. I have It's the 100%. biggest no-brainer on the planet. 100%. And these reports from KPMG around revenue uh, generation in Toronto have been around for years. Yeah. So the fact that they aren't in place is is actually antiquated, if possibly silly. I was walking at Ontario Place just this past weekend, handing out flyers, telling people that I'm running for mayor. The first person that I stopped was an American. 
<laughs> you know, like it, it, they're, they're just, they're everywhere. So, I mean, the, the mm. tourism, you're absolutely right. Why aren't we using that and leveraging that as an economic driver? And there's a number of different ways to do it. So if we are not looking at these economic streams, then what are we doing? We're, we're just sitting on our hands and expecting to go cap in hand every time to our big brother, and big, you know, our parents of the province and the feds. That is not the way to run a big city. Again, this is not the shiny or exciting model talking about revenue streams. But if you want to build a world-class city, start talking about getting revenues into the city to do so. Yeah, it's, it's practical meat and potatoes uh, stuff. Selena Caesar, Shivan is with us. We're going to have another segment with her. Janet Jackson's here at Bud Stage in three weeks. Make her pay a hotel tax. She's Absolutely. probably got a massive entourage. <laughs> yeah. 30 people on stage at the same time. I've seen Jana before. <laughs> Selena Cesar Siobhan is in with us. She's running for mayor of Toronto, June 26th. Um, we don't know much about the debates right now. Are you? Have you had any face-to-face with three or four other candidates? Have you been here? Have you been there? What have those been like so far? So the Ontario Place had a debate on Saturday, which was really interesting because there's so many of us that it's, you know, 30 seconds each. I think the Toronto mm. Region Board of Trade is going to be a little bit different. But you have to poll well yeah. in order to do that. And I, I, to be quite honest, don't think I'm polling well. But I do want to get my, my voice out there, especially on these very p- practical issues. Do polls matter? Right now? Uh, They don't matter unless you want to be included in a debate. So that's going to be a bit of a challenge if I don't get my numbers up. But I don't want it to be the driver. I want people to understand the practicality of what I'm talking about from a holistic perspective in order to make the right choice of vote. The election is not won with polling. Yeah, the, the elections are won on the ground at the door. People ask you, and, and I did this, I think, when we were on the phone um, a month ago when you announced, well, how would you work with the prime minister? And honestly, who knows the workings of the federal liberal government more than you? Who's who's battled? Who stood up for themselves more? Who would who wouldn't be intimidated as mayor of Toronto to go to the prime minister and right. say, this is what we need. How do we make this work? I right. mean, you know, like, again, I, I don't think you're a rear view mirror person as much as you are, like I said, practical and go, the past is the past, but this is what we need right now. And, and that's 100% correct. But it, again, I, I want to reiterate that it's not just about me saying that I could stand up to the prime minister or I could, I'm not going to back down. What we really need to remember as a city, as individuals in this city, is the political power that Toronto has. Toronto is not just an economic powerhouse. There is a political uh, savviness that needs to be leveraged in this city so that we are negotiating, not just as Selena by herself, but of millions of people negotiating something that we should have had a long time ago. They've had a lot of runway to, mm-hmm. to go cap in hand with Toronto. But right now we need a sustainable, predictable funding sources for our social assistance and housing programs. And I'm not afraid within two years to challenge the prime minister to get what we deserve. Is there any um, excess you see on the city budget right now? Anything you want to drill down on, look deeply into the numbers when you become mayor and say, are we spending too much money on this? I've asked other candidates, I asked Olivia Chow, what can we cut? She, She didn't have an answer. Is there anything right now you look at and you say, this might be something worth reevaluating? Yeah, you know what? I, I, 
I, I would agree with Olivia on this one because I think there's a number of programs that are happening within the city. You look at Safe TL, you look at Community Wellness, you, there's just so much in there. Yeah. And I think what, so what I have in my platform, to be quite honest with you, is to evaluate all of them, to put it up like a, like a business person would, a BCG matrix, figure out what's working, support what is, is, has high impact and cut what doesn't work. There is an opportunity for us to reevaluate and not come up with a bunch of different new programs um, to, to add more new shiny things. What in there is not working? And to be honest, the KPMG did an analysis of the programs at the city of Toronto and found maybe three to 5% of them had some lagging and some kind of ability to cut that's mm. where you have to have go, go in and have the political will to look at what was already done and get rid of that. And get rid of start that. Start there. Yeah. This, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just start by the report, cut what needs to be cut, and start to bolster what is really working. Do you see, I just see this giant jigsaw puzzle that unless you get five pieces to fit, the other four, you know, if one's out of place, the other four won't. And that's housing, homelessness, yes. crime, mental health, opportunities for people. It's just this if 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 we don't get, you know, we, we we need to figure out a way to fix, you know, three before we can fix the other two. Does that make sense? That does make sense. But before we even start to fix, we need to know where the pieces of the puzzle are. So mm. assessing the current assets of the city of Toronto, like where we have land in order to build that housing. Let's start there. Start with that assessment. And then you could figure out if we need to build X amount of units, well, we're going to look at the fabric of this particular community where we have land that we could build on. What kind of unit are we going to put there? Are we going to put a 40-story skyscraper? Are we going to look at the fabric and say this might have a multi-unit dwelling? Right. So we have to look at what we currently have then start to plan out how we're going to build the housing, then make sure that with looking at Section 37 of the Planning Act, what kind of community benefits are necessary there. We don't need parquets everywhere. We might yeah. need a community center or an elder care center or a child center. We have to look at that. Then we start looking at what kind of other supports are, are needed around there. So it's it actually is a holistic process. It's not looking at each thing in a silo. I find the nimbyism really loud. And, and yet at the same time, I'm thinking... You need to see the bigger picture here because you you need these buildings. You need even even just these walk ups that That's you correct. know a lot of us would have grown up in three floors, six or seven residences, um, and and for some reason in Toronto they just stopped building them for fifty years, and that's. A huge reason. So right. every mayor, every mayor we've really had since the 80s has has a, a finger that we can we got a finger we can point at each of them and go, what, why did why did you not see the forest for the trees and allow these to be built to because to, you're right. It's either it shouldn't be either a 40 uh, story skyscraper or a huge house in uh, it, by right. the bridal path. We can find some some middle ground. There has, there has to be middle ground, especially for what we can term, whether we define it or not, middle class. Right. So mm -hmm. that that eroding middle needs to find a place to live. And so intensification and how it looks within our city can be quite creative with having these different models. Again, you had somebody talking about the Toronto Life article. Yeah. There was there was one a couple of weeks ago that looked at these different kinds of intensification, looked at tiers, looked at podiums, looked at different ways to have different units that were creative, that were innovative. And this is what we need. We need to bring the unusual suspects to the table and say, how do we do this in a way, once we know what our assets are, how do we do it in a way that creates that middle, that disappearing mm -hmm. middle? How do we bring that back to the city? 
I got a couple of minutes left, so I, I want to give you um, the floor to, to ask if, if there's anything you, you still want to get to. But I do want to get in a quick question about policing and, and how you view yeah. its role in a big city. Um, big cities will always have crime. They'll always have problems. There'll always be big stories that get amplified and then we forget about them. Um, but we've had so many important conversations about what what policing should be in context with mental health, in context yeah. with making sure citizens feel safe but not intimidated. It's a it's a it sounds great on paper. It's really hard to get there practically. It, it is hard to get there practically. But if we even look at the O'Brien Tobin case, he was arrested many times. Police did their job. Mm -hmm. What didn't do their job was the social services that supported that individual. So housing job job security um you know he he was arrested going to a shelter he didn't have his id so he couldn't go to the shelter got arrested because he wasn't in the shelter right so there's the services around it that that did not support this individual and to be honest it's not a fault of those services. It's a fault of the fact that we don't have the money. So how do we start to, it's the revenue generation piece coming back in and saying, let's support the social housing. Let's support the social assistance program. Let's support people who have mental health crisis. Let's support those in a comprehensive way. It's looking upstream and downstream at crime and saying, how do we leverage programs like zero gun violence or my reset mm -hmm. that help people get back into the system? The University of Washington did a report on this. There's an 11 to 1 return. For every dollar we put into crime prevention, you get an $11 return. Why? Because these individuals are able to work. They're buying their house. They're going out with their family. They're going to different places. This is practical. Yeah. And it's the way we need to look at solutions for a big city like Toronto. Yeah. What, uh, we got a minute left. What else do you want to squeeze in and, <laughs> and uh, implore people to do before June 26? What kind of what kind of questions are you are you getting asked by people? You know what? I just want to implore people. So again, I'm not up in the polls. I probably won't be at some of the bigger debates. What I want people to do is to challenge whatever candidate they have when they have these multi-million dollar ideas with these big shiny bowls. Where is the money coming from and who are you going to squeeze to get it? This is what we need to be challenging our candidates to do. I don't care who you vote for. I'd hope you vote for me. But if you don't, challenge your candidate a little bit more to say, what is the practical solutions that you're offering to get Toronto to be a self-sustainable, resilient city? Because if we don't do that, we're going to be going cup in hand for years to come to the feds in the province. And they always come with strings when they bring their money. Yeah, yeah. Selena Cesar Chavan uh, with us. What's a uh, website for people to check out your platform uh, and more? Yep, Selena for Mayor to com, and it's Selena C E L I N A. That's right, it is. It is. I had a crush on a girl with an S, uh, Selena in grade nine. <laughs> not that girl. That girl. The, no, the, you are not that girl, nor do you spell your name the same. <laughs> the C, not the S. <laughs> Um, I, I said it at the start. It's so true. Politics is better with you in it. So, you. you know, we need your voice. We need your independence. We need your autonomy um, in scenarios like appreciate this. Appreciate it. So good luck. Thank you so much, Greg. I appreciate it. Thank Selena Cesar Chavan with us in studio. It won't be our last conversation before June 26th. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I, I loved reading this piece in Toronto Life, and we've had our next guest on several times. Super smart uh, architect. And I thought this provides a great counter argument 
argument for living in the city. I really think living in the city and not just anywhere in the city, but in a condo in the city. She is Nama Blonder and she rejoins us now on Toronto Today. Um, that's that's something. You open your home, you kind of expose yourself a little bit to the story. <laughs> but I loved reading the story. Did you did you hesitate at all thinking, nah, people need to know how this could work for people? No, I. you know what? I hear too often that I'm radical for having that lifestyle. So I was all about <laughs> sharing this story. Who tell does you, do your friends tell you you're radical that have these like postage stamp <laughs> backyards or they live out in uh, Stouffville or Ajax and and they say what's you know you're you're different than we are and you said no I'm not really this this just works for our young family and the funniest thing is that they always you know they don't mean to to offend me right it's always done in this very casual way of like oh yeah but you're the one percent extreme you're the radical like why am i why is that considered radical where outside of north america this is how <laughs> this is this is very very common lifestyle it really is and i mentioned you know london new york tokyo paris um there are, are obviously people that thrive and and that's the dream. The dream is to step outside your building and be able to walk to get groceries and walk to eat dinner and walk to go to a you know a big concert or whatever. And you can do that and we can't. Exactly. And I always say there aren't any backyards in Paris and yet it's considered to be a lovely city to live in. So that's exactly the point. So w- w- I, I also read in the story that there is there's sort of guidelines as to how many family oriented condominiums there should be. I think we think condo sometimes, Nama, and we think, you know, small uh, area yeah. where only only maybe a, a married couple could live a retired couple or someone who is single, either either not married yet or newly single post marriage. But yes, you can raise a family in these places. Of course you can. Exactly. And and that's an unfortunate statistic that, that the vast majority of the units are very, very small. And in 2017, the city of Toronto said, OK, we need to do something about it. And they came up with a policy called Growing Up. I really like that name, where they said 25 percent of all new units need to be either two or three bedrooms to accommodate uh, f- families. And, uh, you know, 2017, everything takes time in the city to be approved and built. So I think now we're starting to see more and more of these units. And I'm very optimistic that that will drive some change in the market. Nama Blonder is our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. And this is uh, this, her story and her family story is featured in uh, in Toronto Life, our friends from there. Um, and now, the, so let's wind the clocks back. You're looking to buy property, um, you know, close to two years ago now. Did was this a sudden left turn towards a condominium? Did you look at smaller houses? Did you look at suburbs? And and you had a very young family. You, you note in the story you're pregnant with your second child. Or was it was this absolutely laser focused? You're like, let's do this with a condominium. Or was there a variety of choices yet? Condo was our first choice. I grew up in a four bedroom apartment. My partner grew up in a five bedroom apartment, which is kind of again the challenge here. But we were looking for a three-bedroom, two-bath. That was, that was my wish list, um, and it was challenging to find, but we knew that's what we wanted. We wanted to live in an area where we can use transit, when we can walk. Everything was within reach, and we had to look for it, but we found it. But we knew, as I said in the, in the story, even if I had a, a house exactly in the same location for the same price tag, I wouldn't replace my condo with a house. It's just that advantages of living in a condo are 
enormous. I know when um, when people get older, I, I grew up in the country and uh, and, you know, you like the idea of space and my parents put a swimming pool in when I was 11. So that's great. But then you get that sort of, you know, angst like before before you get your driver's license, Nama, you're like, exactly. ah, mom's got to drive me here. Dad's got to drive me there. Your kids won't have to do that. But do, do you think your kids will sort of push and say, say that 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 they'd like something different 10 years from now, 12 years from now? How do you view that? Let's talk in 10 years, but I highly <laughs> doubt it because I see my friends who have teenage kids and they need to drive them everywhere. Like right. their entire schedule is around driving these teenage girls or teenage kids. And you know what? As much as I feel, you know, bad for the parents, I also feel really bad for the teenage who, teenage girls who, who can't have a really independent lifestyle because you can't really rely on transit in the suburbs when you have a bus coming once in I don't know, an hour. Uh, and, and they're really lacking that independence uh, as part of their, you know, early adulthood. So, I, you know, it's a, it's a huge consideration, not to mention everything that the city has to offer. I think you nailed it with kids needing that level of, of independence. And, and even when I'm on the GO train or when I'm on the TTC and I see somebody, girl, boy, that looks 13 or 14, I know some parents freak out. I just shrug my shoulders and I say, they probably know what they're doing. They've been doing this for three. They've been doing this since they were nine or 10. They did it with their exactly. parents when they were five and six. They know where they're going. I, I'm not going to worry about them. Exactly. Uh, starting at nine, you, you teach mm -hmm. the kid how to do it and you practice it several times and and, and it's, you know, all over the world, this is how it's being done. And let's not forget that Toronto is an extremely safe city. So, yeah. Last thing for you, you're probably seeing all these mayoral candidates. And to be honest, they, they don't have your experience and they don't have your sort of uh, lens for, for housing that's needed. Are you hearing on the whole, Nama, are you hearing good ideas? Are you hearing inexperienced people give bad ideas? What's your perspective on what you've heard so far about sort of revolutionizing housing in Toronto? Right. I'm hearing all, all over the spectrum. Some are more realistic than others. Um, but let's see, June 27th, what, you know, what we wake up with and, uh, and, you know, with good advocacy and uh, good uh, media coverage like yourself, we, I'm hopeful that we will make some positive change in the future. Ah, thanks. It was, it was great reading about uh, you and your story. And I, I think it's going to make a lot of people think twice, especially if they love the city, especially if they love uh, living. For. Yeah, it's exactly it, it, it hit all the marks. Uh, thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. That's Nama Blonder. She's been on with us a bunch before, um, and the story in, in Toronto life. Again, the what? There's one big argument I would always have, and I, I think I've lost it for the time being. But I remember coming here in 2007, and we we set up out outside of the city because um, I figured my wife was going to work in the Scarborough Agent Court area, and that turned out to materialize. But then all of a sudden, we both had downtown jobs, and my hours were a little. D different when i moved here um i was on this radio station but i was doing four to seven and that's a little different because you get in the car at seven or you get you you're racing for the go train i remember it like it was yesterday you're racing from young and dundas to get to get on the go train by 7 13 and if you can't get that one you're on the 743 but with two little kids you're thinking you get some of the morning with them and you might even get a little bit leaning into lunchtime with them but your afternoon is is all work and then you're getting home at eight o'clock at night. So I knew that when I was older, that was a big thing, to be honest, to give you a little lens into me. 
I remember my boss said there was another station that wanted to hire me and, and I knew things would go well and I knew I'd have a long stay at that station. I knew it would go successfully. Some some career leaps you take and you're like, not sure this one. I was I didn't it was, was a no doubter that it was going to last and it lasted ten and a half years. But they said, what is it? Is it the work circumstances? Is it the money? Because they'll ask about the money. Is it the hours? And it was probably like one third of each. But the hours did matter. Getting home at 8.15 at night with a three-year-old and a one-year-old kind of stunk. Um, but not. But I've, I haven't been there for a ton of breakfast o- over my lifetime. So you got to give something to get something. What I loved about Nama's story is that she says, forget about needing a yard. We go to the park all the time. Forget about uh, you know sitting in traffic. We don't, we don't own a car. We need groceries. We need to pick something up at Home Depot. We get an Uber. We stick it in the back of the Uber. It's home within. There's always there's always a solution. There's always a solution. And she says it in the article. You give me a detached house with a backyard, same price. I'm not moving. I like the condo. There's something for everybody in Toronto is the point. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I was reading this about the four-day school week. You know how we were debating for a while pre-pandemic Four-day school weeks, because I think if we had four-day work weeks, we'd have to have four-day school weeks. We've talked about year-round schooling. We've talked about a bunch of different ways to change things around. Paul Bennett is an education commentator and wrote a great book about education and where it's been, where it's going, and he's kind enough to join us now on Toronto Today. I love getting your perspective. Uh, Paul, thanks very much for the time today. Great to be with you, Greg. Um, I, I do, am I right about about the idea that this was sort of floated up as a trial balloon? The idea was, well, costs could get cut, more three-day weekends. Could, could teachers and students dig in more on a Monday to Thursday education week? It feels like the pandemic has just destroyed any concept of that. Yes, indeed. It went a lot further than just an idea. The uh, Ottawa Catholic uh, School Board, French Catholic School Board, actually approved a pilot project for two schools that they would go to a four-day school week starting in the next school year. And what and, and so it hap, it has happened. Is there any data or research to show its effectiveness or lack thereof? Well, the Ontario Ministry of Education shot it down, Greg, so yeah. it's not going to happen. But um, the rationale that was presented was flimsy indeed, and I took a good look at what research exists, and I can tell you that the plan that they impl- was, were going to implement was going to be insufficient. They were going to start a week earlier on uh, August the 22nd. They were going to end three days later at the end of June. They were going to add 38 minutes per day over a four-day week. So the time was going to be insufficient, um, and it certainly the evidence and research on teaching and learning time was that it was insufficient to replace the time. But there are other problems with the proposal. Paul, you want to know what they are? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it was a very flimsy proposal because the purported advantages um, in the United States, for example, where this is more advanced, there was a 2015 American study which, uh, based on the state of Colorado, which argued that it would reduce education costs, reduce student absenteeism, and possibly aid in the retention of teachers because it would reduce their work week. Those were the advantages presented in the U.S., But in um, Orleans, which is the headquarters of this school board, where they debated this, they didn't refer to any of those advantages. They were simply arguing that it would help 
the retention of teachers by mm. reducing the work week and would be popular with some parents. So the actual advantages they didn't present. So what's wrong with it? Well, the instructional time that they were proposing would be far short of the equivalency that's required, according to the research. Student absenteeism is essentially unaffected when you make these changes. Um, you're counting on a lot of students. They skip Friday, so canceling Friday would would help. But the research shows it doesn't really make much of an, a difference. It cuts into sports and extracurricular programs, which can't function because school goes longer. And on top of that, there's negligible cost savings. In the U.S. studies that I looked at, yeah. the savings is about minus 2%. That's because people insist the schools remain open and the spaces like the gyms get filled with other activities. In other words, the, uh, the claims are so weak that no wonder the government shot it down. I, I was going to say, the school days have to be longer on the other four days to compensate for there not being a fifth day, but I, th- but I think you nailed it. And, and during the pandemic, I know our, our kids in high school pivoted to a 10 o'clock start and a 4 o'clock finish, and even for part-time jobs or, or going and exercising or any kind of sport, it left parents really, really scrambling um, to make it work, and that's still your standard um, 10 to 4 is a, is a, only a six-hour day, and these days would have to be almost like a 9 to 4 or an 8.30 to 4 to make this work. Yes, it's terrible timing, too, in the wake of the pandemic disruption, which claimed uh, 27 weeks of school for Ontario students. The focus now is on reading, writing, and math and providing expanded mental health supports. So what's the point of, of reducing the school uh, day? Keep in mind that you have, if you have a long weekend, that's a four-day break. So you'd be introducing midterm breaks in schools. The biggest problem with this is it's completely tone deaf in the wake of the pandemic disruption. And what's amazing is in the U.S., yes, there are about 800 school districts that have four-day school weeks, but there are 13,800 school districts. So it's still a tiny um, number. And here's another thing. In Colorado, there were 60 of 178 districts that went to a four-day week. But they only accounted for 3% of the total student population because it was in rural and remote school areas. Mm. Is there any, I mean, I, when I when we've done something for decades on end, I look and I say, should should we reconsider how we're doing them? We've had, in essence, the same school calendar in Ontario and I would assume, you know, all of Canada for, for probably seven or eight decades. Is there anything you would tweak? We get nine weeks off in the summer and two at Christmas and, and March break. Is there anything you would say, ah, this might be a little antiquated and, and this isn't the best thing for learning? Oh, all kinds of things. But looking at scheduling, which is what we're discussing today, I'm not a supporter of the semester system, I, nor are most math teachers or anybody that really looks at the evidence. You know, there is a change. Uh, the classes are too long. We've had sacrifices in terms of what students retain. And uh, while it's popular with many teachers, um, you know, we, we found out during the pandemic that the trimester system Further extending the length of the classes was a, a very unpopular idea and cut against uh, the research in cognitive science. So, yeah, I'd look at scheduling changes, but they wouldn't be the ones that tend to get recommended these days. I would be recommending changes that are in line with the best available research on 
what it takes for students to improve and what could make our school system better. And is two-day cycle a better thing than semester? I know I'm, I'm using terms everybody that went to high school should remember what they are. Is two-day cycle better? No, full-day school, full-year full schedules, full-year schedules. They're better. Um, and what we've got is the semester system with uh, changeovers and lots of loss of time, uh, organizational things. No, it's shorter periods and a full school year. See, That's I had that. Be debating. Okay, so I had that, and I, w- I started high school in 1986, and we had nine 40-minute classes, and we had the same class every day. So the only complaint I'd have about that is, especially for things like phys ed and, and dramatic arts, it was really tough to get into something, right? You can imagine a phys ed class where you're actually only, like after you change into your white shirt and red shorts, you're only really doing something for about 33 minutes. I love debating with you, Greg. You picked the worst case scenario. I would never recommend 40-minute periods. Try 55, five-minute changeovers, six a day, and uh, regular meeting times so that you get all the core subjects every single day. That's a system that works. And Mm. it's one that we... And that would be a change from the current model, which is 90-minute periods um, Mm. and um, a lot of time lost over the changeovers. And I I think there's major changes that could be brought in in scheduling. But however, a four-day school week is not one of them. No, it's not. Can I I interest you in a 125-minute lunch period so I can get to Burger King and back? (laughs) That would be popular. (laughs) You forgot about doubles, though. Back to back. Oh, well, yeah, (laughs) when you go lunch and then a spare, the teacher doesn't show up. The teacher's got a hair appointment or uh, or has got to get a root canal. Oh, those were the days. I remember it well. Those were the days. All right, Paul, let's talk more education really soon. I appreciate you coming on. Oh, what a great thing to be with you again. Thank you. 